Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. I'm your host, Celine Chenoy. Thank you to all of you who return every week to tune in to become a better version of yourself. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and rate our show if you enjoyed this episode. The Back to Basics lifestyle has recently gained popularity worldwide. Going minimalist and getting rid of possessions simplify our lives and give us time to focus on what matters. Yet as exciting as it can be to whittle down our belongings, does it really bring happiness? My guest Light Watkins believes that it won't, unless we do the inner work to cultivate happiness on the inside. He's here to tell us more about his philosophy. Light Watkins has been active in the wellness space since 1998, first as a practitioner, later as an apprentice to his Vedic meditation teacher, and finally in 2007 as a meditation teacher himself. He became nomadic in 2018 and now travels the world giving talks on happiness, mindfulness, inspiration, and meditation. He writes articles on meditation and happiness, leads sold-out meditation training and retreats, and produces The Shine, a global pop-up inspirational variety show with a mission to inspire. During our discussion, Light will introduce us to an inside-out path to getting rid of inner clutter and living a more fulfilled life. Spiritual minimalism, as he calls it, will get you aligned with your values and lead you to a life-changing adventure. Hi, Light. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. It is so lovely to have you on the show. Um, Your teachings are really, really inspiring. And I had actually had a chance to watch your TED Talk on meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to say that it was really refreshing because uh, you have a gift for making meditation really accessible and doable for people. Uh, especially for people who struggle with meditation like myself. So I'm really excited to have you on the show to talk about your techniques and your philosophy. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Great, great. So um, Light, your your new book is titled Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism mm-hmm. to Live a More Fulfilled Life. Before we get into the book's content, I want to know more about you and learn about your story. So you've been a meditation Mm -hmm. and spiritual teacher for more than 20 years. And today you travel the world giving uh, talks to sold out audiences. So take us back to the beginning of your journey. What were the events that sparked your interest in spirituality? Hmm. So I've been, as you mentioned, I've been teaching for, uh, quite a while now. And it's funny because when you think back to, I've worked with thousands of people and there are essentially two types of people that come to learn a practice like meditation, right? One group, which is the majority of people, they come because they have hit some sort of rock bottom moment, either emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, Something has gone very wrong in their life, and they're looking for the light, so to speak, and uh, the light within, not me, the light within. (laughs) I just help to facilitate that process for them. And the other group of 
people, which is a smaller, much smaller group, are people who have just been curious about these esoteric practices and this idea of oneness and inner consciousness and happiness is, is within and fulfillment is within and and what is the purpose of life and you know things like that and their curiosity has been has been so strong that it goes beyond just casual interest where you're just having conversations and reading self-help books into actual taking steps towards you know some people will go to india some people will go to bali and work with a healer some people will go and study with reiki masters and people like that and i was in that group i was in that group i was um i grew up in the south in the southern part of america in, in alabama and had zero exposure to anything spiritual all the way up until after college i was living in new york city and i was working in the fashion industry which is about as far as you can get away from spirituality, <laughs> you know, posing in front of a camera. And um, oh, so you used to model? I yeah, I used to be a model. Oh yeah, that's for about seven years. <laughs> and you know, I had I had gotten into yoga, and it was through yoga that I was introduced to meditation. But it never made sense to me because I would just feel like I was sitting there staring at the back of my eyelids, waiting for something to happen that never really happened. So I had these questions because I kept hearing references to nirvana and samadhi and bliss and, you know, everything is one. And, and I never really felt like that in my direct experience. And then one day I was reading, uh, I, I was in my girlfriend's apartment and I, was look, waiting for her to get out of the shower because we we're going out to dinner or something like that. And she had this book on her bookshelf called Conversations with God. And it's by Neil Donald Walsh. And I yeah, initially I just him actually. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I thought it was a religious book. And I just dismissed it because I would see it in bookstores, but I had nowhere else to go. I was waiting and I was bored. And so I picked up the book and I started thumbing through it. And I saw that it was, it was um it was just a book about a guy who had questions like me. What is the purpose of life? What is the deal with Nirvana, Samadhi? And all the questions that I had been I'd been sitting with but had no good answers for. And I started reading the answers in the book, which is purported to be a, con a literal conversation between this man who wrote it, Neil Donald Walsh, and God. And, um, and it, I found the answers... I found that his answers were resonating with me. So I ended up getting my own copy of the book, devouring it. And I, I consider that to be my sort of gateway moment into a conscious spiritual path where I started to explore other practices. I was exploring astral traveling, channeling, um, other forms of meditation. And then I eventually decided that I wanted to retire myself from the fashion industry and go all in on spirituality. And this is back in like the late nineties, early two thousands and the place where a lot of the spiritual um, teachers were located was in Los Angeles. So I moved from New York to Los Angeles and kind of started over. That was one of my first or maybe my second nomadic experience where I gave up everything and just really started over from scratch and that's where I became a yoga teacher. And then two months into my yoga teaching, I met my meditation teacher, who was the man that introduced me to what I now 
realize is the minimalist approach to meditation, which is where I actually did have that direct experience with nirvana and samadhi and bliss and oneness and inner fulfillment and all the things that I had been um, confused about earlier. And then I knew immediately that I wanted to help other people have that experience after having struggled for many years uh, as a reluctant meditator. And, uh, and so then in 2007, I went to India with my teacher and I trained to become a meditation teacher myself and came back and started teaching people full time and how to get into the deepest states of awareness and meditation. And then in 2014, did that TED talk that you and I talked about before we started recording. And then I wrote a book on happiness and then another book on how to succeed in meditation without really trying. And then another book on inspiration, how inspiration is everywhere if you know where to look for it. Mm-hmm. And most recently, the Travel Light book, which is about spiritual minimalism, which is really about creating fulfillment internally. And as a result, you have less attachment to things externally. Right, right. Um, before we get into that, I'm curious to know, what type of meditation did you start out with? Initially, I started just doing whatever was around. So now when I look back, I recognize that I was doing mostly monastic styles of meditation, which means meditation that was intentional, that was originally intended for monks, where you're sitting with your legs crossed, your back is straight, your shoulders are back, you have your thumb and your index finger together, you're focusing on something, you're visualizing something, you're imagining something, you're noticing something, you're letting go of something. And the time just inched by and it felt basically like an inner torture chamber. Yeah, Um, I was going to say, did you struggle initially? Yeah, I struggled big time. I couldn't wait for the meditation time to be over. That would be the best, the, the, the biggest relief was when the experience was over. And, uh, but during the experience, I just felt there, I just sat there writhing in pain, battling with my mind and not really knowing what I was doing and thinking that that was the point, thinking that the point was for meditation to be hard. And it's like, you have to, you have to transcend the the difficulty of it all. And that's where you find the bliss. And it just never really happened for me until I met my teacher. And, and he was like, you don't need to cross your legs. You don't need to have your back straight. You don't need to have your fingers together. And and don't focus on anything. Don't try to let go of anything. Don't imagine anything. Just sit there and let your mind be free range. Just let your mind roam wherever it's going. And ironically, when I did that, I started getting into that deepest aspect of my inner consciousness. And, and that's where meditation became quite uh, delightful. And then instead of being the person who couldn't wait for the time to finish, I became the meditator who didn't want the time to finish because it felt so good. Interesting. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would be relieved to hear that because I'm, it can be difficult for people who are, who tend to think a lot and who are more cerebral. It can be hard to like stay in that space of quiet and just for extended periods of time. So yeah, it's good to know that it can be done. Yeah. And, um, and it is easier than people think that meaning an application it's easy, but it's very counterintuitive to what we've been taught that meditation is supposed to look like, you know, like if you Google meditation, you're going to see everybody sitting with their back straight, sitting with their legs crossed, sitting on cliff sides, sitting, you know, in a field of grass, 
Yeah. And these are all like the worst ways you want to yeah. you yeah, want to start for meditating. like stock images. That's what's you that is what you're going to find. Like if you type meditation. Yeah. But people don't realize those are all models. Like I used to model. Yeah. I've been hired to do those things. And the photographer yeah. is not saying, okay, I want you to meditate. The photographer is saying, okay, I want you to sit like this and turn right. at this angle and just close your eyes. So it looks like you're meditating, but you're not really having any kind of internal experience. So mm-hmm. if people try to emulate that. You're going to think something's wrong with you. But in fact, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just, it's just that you're you're doing too much. Mm-hmm. Great, great. So for people who want to know more about your meditation style, because I, I want to get into, into your book, uh, where can they learn more about all the different techniques that you teach? Well, ironically, I have um, some instructions in all of the books that I've written, but I, the one with the most comprehensive instruction is, is my second book called Bliss More how to succeed in meditation without really trying. And that's a literal interpretation of what I'm instructing people to do in the book. If they want to really go deep, they can do that. If they want just minimal instructions, they can get travel light, which is the recent book. Yeah, that book is broken down into seven principles and meditation is principle number one. Okay. Got it. So let's talk about the book. So going minimalist is really trendy. It's been really trendy for the past decade or so. Everyone is trying to get rid of their mm-hmm. possessions and, you know, clear out their closets, clear out all the clutter in their lives. But you believe that it's not sufficient. Like it's not enough if you really want to feel that sense of liberation and to really feel free. I'd like to know, why do you think that's the case? Why is it not enough to just clear out the clutter in the traditional sense? There's a reason why we collected all that clutter. And I think that reason needs to be addressed. There's something beyond the external clutter, right? That we would refer to as the root cause of why we think, thought we needed all this stuff. And so my whole ideology is, yeah, it's great to clean out your closet. By all means, do so. Clean up under the bed, sweep it up, you know, um, get rid of whatever you haven't been using. But that's not going to lead to a long-term feeling of inner peace, which is what I think people want to have when they start to go on this, this cleaning um, binge. And it, especially if you haven't addressed the internal baggage, the internal clutter, the internal dust, that, uh, that could have been the reason why you, you acquired all this stuff in the first place. Okay. And and one of the one of the uh, tendencies of us humans is to get ourselves caught up in the acquisitive approach to happiness, which means I am operating under the presumption that if I acquire the right stuff and the right amount at the right time, then I'm going to feel happy as a result of that. And it can it's not doesn't have to be material stuff; it could be knowledge. As soon as I get my degree, I'm going to be happy. Could be love. As soon as I meet my soulmate, I'm going to be happy. Could be children. As soon as I have a family, I'm going to be happy. Could be status. As soon as I get a promotion, as soon as I become the head of this thing, I'm going to be happier. It could be financial. As soon as I get a certain number of zeros in my bank account, then I'm going to be happy. We may not say it literally like that, but that's that's the that's the implication of our actions. We're thinking that 
because we you can tell by what we prioritize, right? We'll happily skip sleep. We'll skip forging strong relationships. We'll skip quality time with our family mm-hmm. in order to work on this thing to acquire something. And I'm not anti-achievement. That's not what my message is. But what tends to happen is we'll acquire the thing. We'll get an initial boost of dopamine, which will make us a little bit, you know, more satisfied with our life than we were prior to achieving the thing. But then eventually we'll settle back into the same state that we were in before we achieved the thing. Now, Obviously, if you haven't had your basic needs met, if you're chained up somewhere in somebody's basement and you get freed, yes, you're going to be permanently right, happy. Yeah. Once We're you get assuming liberated. that your basic needs are met. Yeah. If you're watching this podcast, <laughs> we're assuming your basic needs are met. Yeah. But and, and, the, and statistically speaking, the, what the research is showing is that after your basic needs are met, your happiness level doesn't quite go up as much from achievements, from getting more stuff, Right. And um, so what I'm inviting the listener and the readers and all that to do mm-hmm. is if you've had enough research in the acquisitive approach to happiness, maybe you haven't, maybe you have to keep doing that. But once you get to a point where you start really questioning and seeing both sides of the thing and seeing, oh, wow, I've achieved everything and I'm still not any happier, then the opportunity is, okay, we'll see what happens when you take the same approach, when you take the same village, uh, vigilance and determination in your inner practices, your meditation practice, your gratitude practice, your random act of kindness well, practice, like inside out your service, approach. right? You take the same, but you have to be you have to be consistent. That's my point. Yeah, you know like, that's hard to do. Like especially in our world, which is so materialistic, and everyone's facing bouts of FOMO, like in social media, the allure of social media, it's, we're so distracted that lesser people are able to tune into their inner world. So I think that's why the kind of work that you do is really, really important, you know, to redirect people's attention to what's going on inside, because that's really where all the answers are. There's this uh, philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, who said, it's hard to find happiness within. It's very difficult but it's impossible to find it anywhere else. <laughs> so, you know, and well, at it's least for the long term, right? Wealth. For the long term, because uh, yeah. you know, there are two types of happiness as eudaimonia and like hedonistic happiness, two kinds of happiness. And you're talking about uh, um, eudaimonia, I'm guessing, the one that really, uh, the kind of happiness that really fulfills you on the deepest level. Right. And what... Maslow would refer to as self-actualization, right? Like you become self-realized. In other words, you start to directly experience and embody this idea that you are connected to everything and everyone else. So that's in India, they would call that self-realization. It became self-realized. You've transcended your individuality. Now your direct experience is one of universality. And the way that plays out in a day-to-day life is that you're having these moments of what feels like serendipity from just casual interactions, conversations, being in, in uh, what other people would consider to be miserable situations, being in line, the grocery store, being in traffic, having to go to the DMV. And you're there and you're just absolutely fascinated. By, but at, or at the very least, you're neutral. You're not, you're not in a state of suffering because 
this thing that you're having to do is holding you back from your real goal of achieving your way to happiness. It's, It's holding you back from the big goal in your life, right? And that's where you get into the journey is the destination um, way of living, which which means everything you're doing, even the hard stuff, is somehow adding to the fulfillment that you're experiencing inside. Mm-hmm. So how do we manage our emotions during those times? Like we're waiting in line, we're getting really cranky, we're stuck in traffic, what do you suggest people do in that moment? Because we cannot really get into meditation at that time. And like, for instance, when you're driving, it wouldn't be safe. So how do we manage that when we're in that moment of frustration? You don't wait to get into that moment of frustration to try to manage it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, let's I mean, look at it. Let's take triggered, right? all that out of it. Let's just, yeah. no, but let's look at it financially, right? Okay. People say it's very expensive to be broke. And that's because when you don't have enough money to get your basic needs met, then you have to operate at levels where people are really taking advantage of you and you you don't have any credit. So you have to pay for everything that you get up front. And that's why it could be really expensive. Right. So it's the same thing when it comes to this internal happiness that I'm talking about. Every time you are having an overreaction which is what you're referring to, you're cranky, you're grumpy, you're maybe sad about something or afraid of something or angry about something or bored or triggered or whatever. That's kind of like spending money, okay? And when you are able to be fulfilled inside, that's kind of like you got a credit deposit of something, of, of money. And if you have more credit deposits, then when you are in situations where you have to pay something, it's not a big deal. If you don't have enough money in the account and you have to pay a bill, you have to pay to take the boot off your tire on your car, you have to pay a ticket or a fine, it's it's everything. It can ruin your whole day. <laughs> and so that's why people are so dedicated to acquiring wealth. So they never have to put themselves in the position where paying a fine is going to ruin their whole day. It's not that big of a deal. And that's why I said earlier, you have to have that same diligence to cultivating internal fulfillment, meaning it has to be a daily practice in the same way that building wealth is a daily practice, in spite of the fact that social media is a distraction and Netflix is a distraction and there are all these distractions. You still got to do what you got to do to make the money so you can pay your bills comfortably, right? So once you do that, once you cultivate inner fulfillment and you have a situation where the line is longer than you wanted to be or, you know, the DMV person is not being very nice or patient with you, 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 you're not going to put yourself in a situation where you're in debt emotionally, which is what that distress or that triggering situation actually is. It puts you, that overreaction means you're in debt emotionally. You owe yourself more than you've been giving yourself back. And that's why they say self-care is a way of sort of topping off that internal bank account so that you have enough to give to others. And meditation is like the oxygen mask. You know, They say it all the time on the plane, put the oxygen mask on yourself first, then help everybody else. And if you don't do that on a regular enough basis, then you're going to become a liability in your own life 
because you're going to find yourself getting triggered all over the place. So whatever's happening now, maybe you have an anger management thing. Maybe you are, you know, feeling like you don't have boundaries or whatever. People are taking advantage of you. You still are going to have to do the same thing that everybody else has had to do when it comes to becoming more fulfilled inside, which is you have to start dedicating some time every day to your inner practices. And that's going to start happening less and less over the long term. I wish there was a shortcut to say that you can somehow avoid it in real time, but you just have to put the work in like everybody else, whether you like to or not. Yeah. I really like that analogy of, you know, comparing it to money and, you know, it's essentially your inner wealth. And I feel like we need to do the same thing with our body. I mean, we need to eat right. We need to work out. That's the only way we can stay in shape. So similarly, we need to do a workout for our inner world and so that we can keep it, stay centered in, in times like that, where we're really stressed out. And that was my first book, The Inner Gym. <laughs> Just what you said. That's right. Inner, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. The inner workout. Yeah. And the metaphor I, I used was the pull-up. Like everybody knows how to do a pull-up, but just because you understand how to do a pull-up doesn't mean you're going to be able to grab the bar and pull yourself up unless you've been cultivating the strength, the muscle strength to be able to do that. And the same is true with happiness. Everybody knows what it's like to be happy, but the reason we're not able to actually be happy when it counts is because we haven't cultivated the internal, I call them the inner muscles in order to to tap into that inner state of fulfillment. And it needs, just like going to the gym, to use another analogy, you have to, you have to be consistent. You have to dedicate yourself to regular practice. And, uh, and I call meditation the key domino because it makes it easier to do all the other things. It makes it easier to do all the other things that are important for cultivating those internal muscles. Right. And is meditation the only vehicle that we can use? Like, because people have different temperaments and, you know, they've been through different things in their past. Like, you know, maybe they've faced trauma or, you know, they, they were raised differently. So there are different points in their healing journey. So yeah, is it like a one size fits all kind of approach or what do you, what do you have to say about that? Can there be different paths to achieving the state of inner peace? That's a really good question. And I don't know if there's like a straight, simple answer, <laughs> but I thought I'll just throw it no, out. No, no, no. There is a, there is, <laughs> there is a simple answer. There, uh, there's like five and I'm trying to figure out which one oh, is the okay, best okay. one to use. <laughs> just for, just for whittle it question. down to one or two. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't, I wouldn't use the word best. Okay. But I, here's a, okay, just a simple way to think about meditation. I want you all, meaning your listeners, to think about meditation in the same category as you would think about sleep, right? No one in their right mind would question whether or not sleep is useful. Now, you may not be able to pinpoint exactly what happens as a result of sleep, but we all know what happens if you don't sleep at night. It's very hard to be generous the next day. It's very hard to make good decisions, to be patient, to have compassion, and all the things that we ultimately want when we imagine the best version of ourselves. You can't tap into that best version of yourself without sleep. So all meditation does when when practiced on a regular basis, and I make this distinction because And I make this distinction because a lot of times people will just meditate once every blue moon, right? And that's not really going to do anything. 
But if you do it on a regular basis, you're able to tap into what's called the relaxation response. And what's interesting about the relaxation response is that the relaxation response is the exact opposite of stress response. So what we know about the stress response is that the stress response puts your nervous system in the most excited state that it can ultimately get into. And that is mitigated by stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. Those are the most stimulating chemicals the body can experience. Well, as it turns out, the most rested the body can become is the relaxation response, even more so than sleep minute for minute, right? But it can only last for about 15 to 20 minutes. So it doesn't supplement, it doesn't replace sleep. What it does is it supplements it. And after you experience or expose your nervous system to that relaxation response enough times, ironically, your body will start to achieve greater states of rest while being. So what meditation is really doing is it's increasing the quality of your sleep. And as the sleep quality increases, you're able to access that best version of yourself a lot easier. So there's not fairy dust that meditation sprinkles on you that yep. causes you to become superwoman or superman. Right. It's that the meditation, it supersizes your sleep. And once your sleep gets supersized, then you become a better version of yourself. So in that sense, yes, everybody can benefit from the meditation because everybody can benefit from having better sleep. Just better, like right. everybody can, everybody will um, have a worse experience if they have bad sleep or no sleep, mm. no matter who you are. Right. And what about walking meditation? Because I feel like I get into a meditative state when I'm engaged in more physical activities. Um, mm -hmm. So would that also be an option for people like where you're more engaging your body more rather than sitting still? Look, there's a difference in meditation and meditative activities, okay? The difference is when you're in action and you're doing a mindful meditative activity, what that usually means is you're able to drop into a moment and you're able to feel more present than you would feel otherwise, meaning you're not thinking about your past, you're not thinking about your future. But scientifically speaking, you are not experiencing the relaxation response. So if you're not accessing the relaxation response, then you're not getting the greatest benefit out of the time that you're investing in your quotes meditation practice. I put it in quotes because I consider meditation to be a seated eyes closed practice, okay. but I, I get that we, we attribute lots and lots of things, you know, dancing meditation, road biking, meditation, crocheting right. meditation, like all of it. But what it really is, is meditative. Here's the greater point. The reason why people don't like sitting still is because you're having the same torture experience. Imagine if you sat still and it felt, it felt as good as 
you know, getting a massage <laughs> or as good as taking a bubble bath or whatever thing lights you up inside, whatever self-care activity lights you up inside, then you don't have to try to force yourself to do it. And that's that was the switch that I experienced when I met my teacher and I started doing the minimalist approach is that I went from the reluctant meditator to being the enthusiastic meditator. And then I didn't understand why people didn't do it. I was like, this is, a, this is great. Why isn't everybody doing this, right? And, and again, it comes down to just understanding how to operate in concert with that thinking mind. And that's what people don't want to have to do is battle with their, with their mind. But when you know what you're doing, you don't have to battle with your mind anymore. And it feels quite enjoyable. Are you finding it harder to teach your students these practices with the advent of social media and things like that that really are stimulating us with smartphones around with all the notifications? Is it getting more challenging for you as a teacher? I love it. I love all of that because I can use all of that as metaphors and analogies to help people understand how to meditate um, in a, in a, without really trying in a very uh, easy and effortless way. And, and it also gives them an opportunity to see directly, oh, wow, I was trying to find my happiness through scrolling on Instagram or Twitter, <laughs> which is what a lot of people are doing. They wouldn't necessarily say it like that, but that's essentially what you're doing. Especially the younger generation. When you wake up in the morning. Yeah, the younger generations, Gen Z. Yeah, when you, when you wake up in the morning yeah. and you pick up, the first thing you do is you pick up your phone and you start scrolling through it. You are, you are now in the acquisitive approach to happiness. You're looking for happiness and better possibilities seeing what everybody else is doing, comparing right. yourself to what everybody else is doing, That's right. imagining what if you, what if you did if, what, whatever they were doing, if you would feel happier than whatever you're experiencing right now. And, and that's not going to lead anywhere good or sustainable in your life. It's not going to make you more present. It's only going to make you less present once it becomes habitual. So, so I think that, you know, when people have that experience so many times and then they get they get introduced to someone like me and that we get to sit down and, and work together for you know a few days, they have a great sense of relief that there's something else out there that can oh. help them offset. So that you don't face so any resistance from them? They're not like, oh, I don't know, you know, I need I'm trying to reach out for their phone while you're trying to get them to sit still and be like, hey. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, that's not that's not the problem I have. <laughs> well, look, I I'm I'm a, I'm a very, I give my, in order to study with someone like me, you have to pay a good amount of money and, and that gets your full attention. Right. So so I'm sure the people who come to you are invested and you know, they're, yeah. they're you're like, right. You're like listening to every word. Right. To get the, yeah. Your money yeah. That, yeah. The experience. That, that makes sense. Before I let you go, I want to quickly ask you about something that you mentioned in your book. I'm um, just going to quote it very quickly. You say that a spiritual minimalist relishes the process of living life while allowing the outcome to be whatever it is and knowing that on a divine level, life is always happening for them and not merely to them. So how do we maintain that balance between allowing and actually being proactive about really getting what we want? It's a really good question. Again, um, when you are experiencing suffering, and again, I'm speaking just generally, not to you specifically, but but you're part of this, just like I am. When we experience suffering, think about the last time 
you had one of those reactions that we talked about earlier. You felt cranky, you felt irritable, you felt confrontational or disagreeable or angry or sad or depressed or anxious or any of those things. Usually, meaning 99.9 times out of 100, usually you feel that way because something is not happening in the way that you think it should be happening. Or it's not happening in the amount of time that you think it should be happening. And that's what creates suffering. It's not that the thing happened or that it happened in a certain amount of time. It's that it didn't happen in the way you thought it should have happened or didn't happen in the amount of time you thought it should have happened. Inherently, it's not a dangerous thing 99% of the time. Inherently, there's no life being threatened, right? When you drop your cell phone and crack the screen, it's not a life or death situation, but it didn't happen. That didn't go the way you wanted it to go. And so if you cannot adapt, if you cannot adapt to that change, then you are going to suffer. No matter how smart you are, no matter how many degrees you have, no matter how much understanding of the world you have, if you're not able to adapt to that change, you are going to go into the fight or flight reaction. And the first the first thing that happens when you go into the fight flight reaction is your prefrontal cortex, which is the front of the brain, gets shut down. And that's the part of the brain that gives you the ability to say, you know what, that's not really a big deal. Or it just happens. Or let's look at the big picture. So you don't have access to that part of the brain. Everything gets rerouted to your amygdala, which is the fear center. And that's what puts you in that fight-flight reaction. It all happens very, very quickly. And the whole internal body starts to change uh, via hormones, those stress hormones we talked about. And the body starts preparing itself to fight whatever the thing is that caused you to drop your phone, which could be your partner, your child. Or it could be yourself and you start beating yourself up. You know, that's why we do that. And we start to negative self-talk. And that's an inside out job. That's not something that is necessarily predicated on external circumstances. That's the byproduct of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other situations where that happened. Little things didn't seem like a big deal, but it kind of triggered you internally you know, maybe a dozen times a day. And the body's really, the body's very, very efficient. The body has its own algorithm, just like social media has an algorithm. And like with social media, if it sees that you're continuing to click on posts about Labradors or pugs or dogs, what is it going to start to feed you more of? Posts about Labradors, pugs, or dogs. Mm -hmm. It's an echo chamber. (laughs) It's an echo. Yeah, you create your own echo chamber and the body does the same thing. Mm. If the body sees you reacting to these little things over and over, it's going to put you into that reaction mode quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And so just like, you know, you they say death by a thousand cuts. Well, health needs to be restored by a thousand other choices, lifestyle choices. And a practice like meditation needs to become a daily practice in order to restructure the algorithm, the body's algorithm. And you can adapt to these changes easier and easier and easier. And if the body sees you doing this as a result of your internal practices and you're able to stay, have access to the prefrontal cortex and 
and you're able to say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. You find yourself allowing more and more change to happen without needing to react to it on a daily basis. Eventually, the algorithm of the body is going to lock that into place. And you'll Mm -hmm. find yourself naturally allowing while doing whatever else you're doing in your life. Right. And what that frees you up to become is a better version of you, which which usually means you're more present. The worst version of you is the version of you who's still stuck in the past mm. or who's always worried about what's going to happen in the future. Right. The best version of you, the most attractive version of you, the one that everybody wants to be around and hear about and hear from is the present version of you. Yeah. The present. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. So it's about maintaining that equilibrium with within us and also having that faith that everything that we're going through, I mean, it's not a big deal. And in the long run, it can serve us in some way, right? Because that's essentially what you were saying um, in this um, in this excerpt that I quoted, that eventually things will work out if you stay in that space of openness and willingness to see how things unravel. It's not that things are going to work out. It's that when you're present, you're going to be able to see opportunities within the problems and challenges. Ah, If you're not present, all you're going to see are problems and challenges. Got it. So it's going to appear as though nothing's working out, but we, we have, we, you know, the presence allows us to tap into this aspect of our, that oneness aspect. Okay. This is happening for me, not to me. Everything's connected, blah, blah, blah. But even if you don't have that language, you still know that, okay. This route is not working. So then that means this route must be the route to go in. And so I move in that direction. Though. And I never think about this direction. Got yeah. it. That's your greatest asset. Your greatest asset is your ability to adapt to change. It's not time. It's not money. It's your ability to adapt to change because we live in an ever-changing world. So if you can't adapt to change, you're going to be suffering all the time. Absolutely. And that's going to lead to physical manifestation of stress, which is not going to end well. Yes. So true. So you got to learn how to go with the flow. Hmm. Well, you can train yourself to do this, but it has to be a dedicated daily practice from the inside out. And then you never have to think about flow. You just, that's just your natural state. That's a natural. And that's what happens when you're meditating and we're reading your books. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Light, it has been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your wisdom with all of us and introducing us to a whole new way of being and, uh, uh, living. hundred percent. Thank you so much. Those are really great questions. Oh, thank you. Um, so everyone listening, if you're interested in purchasing a copy of Light's book, Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life, you can find it in all major bookstores and on Light's website, lightwatkins.com. Hey everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast And feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.